Welcome to episode 45 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every week until June 1st, 2016. Now, joining me once again is Fractures from the Horizon Labs Facebook and Twitter groups. Welcome aboard, Fractures. Hi again. And we're back in another X-Men-related story. We last heard Fractures on episode 54 with the Chris Claremont and Frank Miller Wolverine miniseries. And this week, he is back for Astonishing X-Men 1 through 24 and Giant-Sized Astonishing X-Men number 1, which is known as the Joss Whedon and John Cassidy run for excellent reasons. Namely that all 25 issues were written by Joss Whedon, and all 25 issues were penciled and inked by John Cassidy. With colors by Laura Martin, letters primarily by Chris Eliopoulos, a little bit by Joe Caramagna. Now the list of editors gets a little bit longer. The assistant and associate editors included Andy Schmidt, Sean Ryan, Nick Lowe, Will Panzo, Corey Sadelmeyer, and Stephanie Moore. It started when Mike Martz was editor of the X-Men office, finished under Axel Alonso's work in the X-Men office. And the whole thing was done under Joe Casada, editor-in-chief. Cover dates range from July 2004 to July 2008. And the release dates range from May 6th to, or sorry, May 26th, 2004 to February 27th, 2008. With a fairly lengthy gap between issues 12 and 13. The rest maintained a fairly monthly schedule. And it came in at number 45 in the countdown. And just to throw out one little bit of history before we get into the meat of it, the reason for that delay was not part of the creative team. That was a decision in terms of the X-Men office. They looked at where the run was ending and decided they wanted to have some pieces lined up in the rest of the X-Books. So they were sitting on issues while the other books lined up to reflect that status quo. So Joss Whedon was asked a few times, when's the next issue coming out? And he was going, I don't know when they're going to release 13. I've written all 25 and John has drawn 23 of them. So it was all done in time by the creative team. It was just one of those stories where the X-Office said, yeah, we can't just let this sit. This has to be a thing. Let's get all our ducks in a row. It's interesting because of all the runs, this is quite self-contained, isn't it? You get a beginning, yes. a middle, and an end. So you'd think actually there wouldn't be much editorial interference. Not a lot, and I think that's part of the reason why I was actually surprised when I saw Axel Alonso was listed as the editor, knowing mm. that he actually hadn't taken over as X-Men group editor until Joss Sweden was about 10 or 12 issues in, into the ones that had his name on them. So Mike Martz was still the editor for the first part of the run. Uh, sure. Axel Alonso did a, a final pass because I guess Joss Whedon was asked to adjust a line of dialogue or two here and there to reflect status mm. quo changes. But even that, I, I think it was something like three lines of dialogue. So there wasn't a lot to change to get everything to line up and fit together correctly. This was very much part of what, you know, helped them get Joss Whedon on board for an X book. Whedon is a huge X-Men fan. He's not a huge fan of having to change his two year plan to reflect the two-year plan of the guy in the office next to him. No, sure. So he was promised a free hand with these characters to do whatever he wanted, and they would make the other creators adjust to him instead of vice versa. So Whedon, he he took that free hand to do whatever he wanted with characters he loved, but he actually tried, aside from the permission of a couple of status quo changes, you'll even notice most of the pieces on the board that changed throughout. Like There's some pretty significant changes for Cyclops during the run that don't last beyond the run. I I would say that there are fundamentally two characters who are very different before and after in terms of the way others would would write them or would have to write them because of their status quo. So who two? Which two are you talking about? I would say Colossus and Shadowcat. Yeah, and only mostly because well, you might as well get into the plot synopsis. So this is really 
Even though it is self-contained and it feels like one large story, it is broken into four story arcs. The first six issues are gifted. And this is sort of the impetus for the issue. Cyclops, Beast, Wolverine, Emma Frost, and Shadowcat are brought together by Cyclops to say, okay, one of the reasons the world hates and fears mutants is because they don't see us doing what we can do. Let's stop focusing on just the bad mutants, and let's just go after bad guys all around. And they were putting the team together, getting out of the movie-inspired black leather and back into spandex, and getting out there to do good things. And the first villain that they face up with is Ord of the Breakworld, who is here, we eventually learn, specifically because his world has a prophecy that the X-Men are going to destroy the planet. And this is the one continuity thing, I'm going to get it out of the way now, it's the one that doesn't make sense to me. If Ord was there and his plan was to draw the X-Men out by taking hostages, how could he do that when this is the first time the X-Men have chosen to just go fight random crime? I mean, if I were Ord drawing out hostages, I would expect, you know, with no X-Men related characters in that group of hostages, I'd have been expecting the Avengers or the Fantastic Four or Spider-Man to show up. So that, that part, just setting it up, seems a little off to me. Running along in parallel with that story, there is now a quote-unquote cure for the mutant condition, which was a big part of X3 The Last Stand. So that part of the movie was inspired by this story. So we have this double-edged sword of this guy's out here to get the X-Men because he's been told that one of them is going to destroy his world. Well, the X-Men are facing a threat of, well, now... The government now has the tools to make mutants not mutants anymore. And they're worried about, you know, mandatory removal of the mutant gene or suppression of the mutant gene, this mandatory implemented cure. We do learn that it was actually Ord of the Break World who was responsible for bringing in the tech to establish that cure. And for that, he knew the test subject. So apparently, behind the scenes in X-Men Legacy, or the Legacy virus story arc of the X-Men in the 90s, he had actually stolen Colossus's body after he sacrificed his life for a cure to the, the legacy virus, and replaced it with a sufficiently convincing duplicate that the X-Men believed he was dead, while well, he could take Colossus out into space and experiment on him and develop the cure. So the X-Men in general, and Shadowcat in particular, find Colossus is alive, not necessarily well. The second story arc, it's an interesting little twist. Dangerous runs issues 7 through 12. The Shire technology-based Danger Room is based on sentient technology and becomes the character now known as Danger, who is now an X-Men villain and has been part of the team. But in this story arc, she's one of the villains and starts to join the team by the end and, you know, results in the death of one of the schoolmates. But that's largely what that's about. Story arc number three, Torn, runs issues 13 through 18, in which the quote-unquote Hellfire Club, which really turns to be, you know, mutant psychic Cassandra Nova manipulating the team through Emma Frost, is... You know, it, it's out there trying to break the team apart. Cyclops' powers are suppressed. A lot of the X-Men are fighting against each other. They're finally band back together for Unstoppable, where everyone now learns what the readers and what S.W.O.R.D., the interworld complement to S.H.I.E.L.D., have known, which is that Colossus in particular was the mutant who was supposed to be responsible for the destruction of the Breakworld. And it all culminates in giant-sized X-Men number one, giant-sized astonishing X-Men number one, when this team, having been captured and taken to the break world after they were there on their own, managed to pull together and save the Earth from the break world's attempt to destroy Earth with what is essentially a giant bullet. And it's saved through the sacrifice of Shadowcat, who is bonded to the metal, and manages to phase the bullet so that it passes through the planet rather than tearing it apart. So that's really the end. It ends with, well, I mean, this is Joss Whedon. 
If he puts a couple back together again at the start of his run, he's going to tear another one apart by the end. That's pretty much guaranteed. In this case, it was the same couple. So the two characters are alluding to, Colossus is no longer dead. And this run ends with Shadow Cat somehow fused with this bullet phasing through space and Lost just still flying on that trajectory and with no guarantee of being recovered. I mean, that's a, that's a great summing up of the whole thing. This is, I mean, this is a great series, a great run. I remember reading this in singles and actually really looking forward to it for, for the first time in ages, looking forward to a monthly comic. But I, mean, I know you, you mentioned Colossus and Kitty being the two characters changed. But for me, the story was all about Kitty. I, I, it's not surprising that Joss Whedon is known for writing or developing strong female characters. And he latches on to Kitty right from the beginning and her character develops throughout. And she ends up being the most important, most heroic of them all by sacrificing her life to ensure that, um, you know, mm-hmm. Earth, Earth prevails. So, and, and for me, the two standout characters in the whole series are Kitty and Emma. Mm-hmm. You know, Emma, she, she sort of, I mean, there was a, there was a time back, you know, when Rogue was the, was introduced to the team and, you know, we'd all seen Rogue as the big villain in that Avengers annual. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden she was smacked back in the middle of this uh, this team of heroes. And it was a similar kind of thing with Emma that Grant Morrison did by bringing in the White Queen. I mean, possibly one of the worst villains of the X-Men and then putting her in the team. And the the way it plays out, you feel sorry for her. You understand her motivations. Mm-hmm. Then you get up, you know, you get pissed off with her again, you know, for what happens in Torn. And then... You're back to understanding her and liking her. Joss Whedon is all about the dialogue, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There's, there's amazing dialogue in this whole series. But that last talk, that telepathic talk between Emma and Kitty is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. You know, throughout they're snarky at each other. Throughout, you know, the, the one-liners are amazing. But that last bit is is just brilliant. Yes. And, you know, you almost get cheated when they bring Kitty back in Fractions Run. However, you knew that was going to happen at some point. Yeah. Just to tell you the significance of this series is this is the first ever Marvel Omnibus that I bought because I loved it so much. I bought it at full price as well. I've never done that ever since. <laughs> but I, I I bought this at full price. I was so, I loved the story so much. It's one of the two I paid full price for and I bought it as a Christmas gift for someone else who loved X-Men as a teen and was out of them and hadn't read them, was a Joss Whedon yeah. fan. It's like, this will bring you back in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I mean, I know you were talking about the problem with the first arc with Ord taking the hostages, but I suppose my real problem with the whole thing was, well, if Ord had come to Earth to kill the X-Men because they knew that he knew that they were going to result in the in the death of his planet, why would he go to the trouble of trying to bring about a cure when all he could do was just kill them? Unless he wasn't sure that it was the X Men, it was all the mutants. I'm not sure. I thought I thought he was pretty sure that it was a, it was an X Men. It just didn't know which one in the beginning. Yeah, it definitely was a member of the team, and that's something yeah. that was established. Surely the easiest thing for him to do would be to just attack them and kill them, rather than go through this whole prolonged thing of developing a cure and then giving it to Kavitha Rao, and then you know this elaborate ruse just doesn't compute. It makes for great storytelling. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, but. Uh, that's the only issue I have with the story per se. Everything else about it was good. Yeah. The the only thing I could see, by the end we established that his is a species that doesn't really like duplicity. So I could see them as being a species that 
it, when you face your enemy, you want to face them head on and you want them to know what they're dealing with. Otherwise, it's not an honorable attack. So, Again, this makes no sense as a result, does it? No. I mean, I can see why he didn't just show up and slaughter them, but... Then it's just, you know, one step beyond, he would want to face them in the field of battle. So again, that the mutant cure thing, I could see that more as a contingency plan in case he needed to save the world, but I could see his preferred approach would be to knock on the door to X-Mansion saying, hi, this is who I am, this is what I can do, this is why I'm here. Let me know when you're ready for yeah. battle, and then I'll kill you. Yeah, and that would have made a great issue as well. <laughs> <laughs> I could see that, but for me, a lot of what it is is that the character work. I mean... Yeah. When I said yeah. that in terms of the continuity significance with Colossus and Shadowcat, if you're reading one of the other books out at the same time, those are the ones where it'd be like, where did Shadowcat go or where did Colossus come from? Right? You couldn't just read them. Emma Frost, you have a much deeper understanding of her after reading this story. But if you read yeah. issues written by someone else both before and after, you wouldn't necessarily know anything had gone on right? if no. they don't explicitly reference it. Cyclops has always been my favorite X character. Yeah, I, th I thought that. I thought you'd like it because of what happens to Cyclops in this thing. Yeah. I mean, he has Cyclops for a long time. Well, to be fair, he hasn't had much character development anyway. But I mean, this was this went a long way. Obviously, Morrison gave him the floor. You know, he had that telepathic affair with uh, Emma. Mm -hmm. And then obviously Jean dies again. And then he hooks up with Emma in the end. But this whole the these 25 issues flesh him out a lot more as a character than probably anyone has done for a, for a long time before and after i think yeah i mean even his cyclops mini series were very straightforward superhero what i'd call a straightforward superhero mini as opposed to something that's fleshing out his character and and giving him a bit of depth which he always sadly lacked a bit you know if you go back through his history there wasn't a lot of work with him with stanley roy thomas did some good work Claremont and Burns started to when they realized, when he realized, okay, yeah, I was the team leader, and because he was he's one of the few characters that's the team leader who didn't want the job. That's one of the things that sets yeah. him apart from superheroes. When Professor X assigns him as leader, he's going, um, you sure you didn't mean someone else, really? Yeah. And they play into yeah. that a bit here. When he's the leader after Giant Size X, but he has to step back and realize this is a different team. I can't lead them the same way because if I try, they won't follow. We will fail. Yeah, and. One of the things he's always had is a very good tactical mind. So he will recognize, okay, what's best for mutant kind in general and humanity as a whole might mean a personal sacrifice. And he's the kind of guy who would do that personal sacrifice. I mean, if you came to him during the Claremont Burn era and, you know, if Mephisto showed up and offered a deal, as apparently he is wont to do, and said, mm -hmm. okay, I can fix the world so all of mutant kind will be accepted as members of the of the population from this point forward, but Gene has to die. I mean, Cyclops' first response is, I expect in that era would have been, well, can I die instead? This would say, no, it has to be the woman you love. I think Cyclops would agree to that and beat himself up for it, but agree to it to make the world a better place. He'd look at the big picture and take the beating himself. That element was misinterpreted, and he was turned into a jerk for a lot of the 90s. He was just treated as an uncaring jackass rather than someone who just said, you know, he's a character who cares about his friends but not as much as he cares about the human, the whole planet. Yeah. But also, you know, they, he was never like, you know, he, he goes into a fight with Storm for the leadership of the X-Men and loses. Mm -hmm. He mopes around after Jean's died. Yeah. And, but in, in this, I mean, obviously they play into exactly what you were talking about leadership. Mm -hmm. That's what Emma plays into in Torn. Yeah. And it, it's done in, a, in an amazing way. And even when he lets loose, when he finally lets loose his beams, you see the power 
the damage that they can do, which, you know, we hadn't seen for a long time. Mm. You don't see him. He's all about, oh, I'm going to restrain myself. I'm going to, I've got to control it because if I don't control it, people around me will die. And I always say, well, he should just let loose. And he let, lets loose in this series. And the, you know, you just see him when he blows that sentinel out. Yeah. And then there's that one panel where it just goes red, you know? Yeah. You just see the characters in silhouette and it goes red and you just realize, holy cow, this guy is very powerful. <laughs> Especially the dialogue that goes with it. It's yeah. just a straight, yeah. I want this thing off my lawn. Boom. I think to be fair, that can be said of a lot of the characters, you know, Colossus really, I think people struggled with him. <laughs> you know, initially it was all about the fact that he was just a simple farmer from Russia. He wanted the best for his family. You know, his sister was a big part of his life, but he was the big strong guy and he could chuck Wolverine at things. <laughs> but there wasn't, you know, that people struggled. What do we do with this guy? What do we do with this guy? At one point he becomes uh, an acolyte of Magneto and then they're still struggling. And what do they do? They make him the cure for the legacy virus. He dies so that the legacy virus can be released and mutants around the world are saved. But in this one, you actually, you know, he, you realize that he can't crack jokes. Mm-hmm. He, he falls in love with all over again with Kitty pride, you know, and he, and he, again, he has his let loose moment, you know, he's made of rage and you see him slam Ord into the ground. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end, you know, he's never been the big thinker. He's never been the guy with the solution, but in the end, he's the guy who realizes that he just needs to change back to human form with his hands, not do what he's meant to do and blow up this core. And, you know, that's this series he's done a lot more than, I don't know. I mean, I've read a lot of X-Men comics and I'm forgetting. I've, maybe there are holes in my memory, but I can't remember him being this fleshed out. All of them, really, you know, even the Beast, all of them get fleshed out really well in this. At no point do you think that these characters are getting oh, this one character really was just in there, but nothing much happened with him. Every single character mm-hmm. gets an important thing. Wolverine doesn't have a particular story arc, but he has got amazing one-liners throughout the whole thing. And yeah. he's played very well for, you know, comedy effect when Nova takes, you know, turns him into this this very posh, posh little boy, you know, yeah, it's, who's scared of it. Yeah, it's turned him back into the boy he is in the first pages of the Origin miniseries. Yeah, and yeah. the way he snaps out of it is just, I had a beer. Yeah, to date, that is my favorite page. The beer can falling on his head. And then you can see the focus on the beer can and the focus on his face, and you know he's back. It's just perfect. Yeah. Brian Michael Bendis is known for his dialogue. <laughs> and, and his dialogue is very good, but Whedon's dialogue is on point every single step of the way. Every interaction between... Kitty Pride and Frost is amazing. <laughs> you see, like that bit, I was teaching ethics. You teach ethics? Yeah. You know, it's just, and also, you know, the bit where it plays out like you'd expect a normal sort of like a, a romantic relationship to be, you know, uh, Kitty is, you know, Colossus is back from the dead. They, they fall madly in love again. And then she has doubts when they play with her mind and, mm-hmm. She thinks that they've had, she really thinks that they had a child and she's trying to get over that memory because the memory stays with her and then they're back in love again. It just, it just feels natural. You know, it's like the way normal people would talk. Mm-hmm. That's what really grabs me about this. The first time you hear people's voices, Grant Morrison did a lot of that in, in the new X-Men, especially with, you know, Wolverine one-liners and stuff like that. But this one storyline, it just everything they say, rings true and you think to yourself yeah you know 
Cyclops would say something like that. Oh, yeah. Or Wolverine would be that pain in the ass, you know, trying to be smart or, you know, trying to get the last last word in, you know. And, you know, Colossus would be a bit awkward. And Kitty and Emma wouldn't get along given their history. It's just, from that point of view, it's a, per- you know, this, I know we spoke the last time I, I was on, we spoke about, oh, my God, that story's in, but this story isn't. But this one, I feel, deserves to be in the top 75. Well, so obviously that's my opinion. I'm not sure if you agree. My gut reaction seeing the list and seeing this showing up at number 45 was it's only number 45? Oh, yeah. Well, at least it made the list, though. At least it made the list. <laughs> no, given what didn't. Yeah, my favorite X-Men page of all time is also from this run. It's actually the end of issue 23, with Cyclops revealing uh-huh. his powers are back. His powers and are back, yeah. You know, he's being interrogated by an alien going, and the alien's saying, well, what else have you hidden from us? And then it's a full force optic blast in the face that tears through multiple layers of this spacecraft and rips through and Wolver- keeps yeah, keeps going, rips through Wolverine's handcuffs, but leaves the rest intact, making Wolverine react, damn, sometimes I remember why you were in charge, right? Or damn Cyclops, he sometimes remember where you were in charge is when he took out the, the Sentinel. And then it yeah. just ends with Cyclops freeing himself from captivity. You realize this has been the plan all along. Eyes glowing, yeah. ready to fight with a telepathic call. To me, my X-Men, let's finish this. It's just brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. I think the other thing, I mean, if you look at sort of mission statement and deeper meanings, I think the the reason why this series resonated with a lot of people, especially old timers, is that there's a lot of beats that are familiar to us. Mm -hmm. There's a lots of stuff that's been taken from previous stories in a way. So a bit like, you know, a long dead X-Men turns up alive. Well, that's a trope from forever that always happens they're looking for a cure for the mutant gene well that's been in numerous stories as well there's the return to morrison's new x-men with the sentinel that destroyed genosha the blob that uh, contained cassandra nova there's the hellfire club which always is, is always there as a thorn in x-men side you know kitty has the great wolverine moment from the Hellfire John Byrne Claremont issue. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's my turn. Yeah. And it's drawn exactly the same way. Yeah, same pose as she's in the, like, I think it's more an underground stream than a sewer, but yep, very yeah, reminiscent. So, you know, there, you've got a, there's a piece of Cassandra Nova in Emma's brain that causes all trouble, which is a, a flashback to Onslaught with Magneto being within Xavier's brain. And that was the whole reason why Onslaught was created. So, you know, this thing is just absolutely full mm-hmm. of things that are familiar, yet very, very different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why this really resonated with me. And like I said before, every single character has their moment in the sun. And it's an amazing moment in the sun. Cyclops, when, he, like you said, when he lets rip with his, we haven't seen that for ages. Yeah. You know, Cyclops actually letting rip with these beams, reminding us how powerful he actually is. And then also showing his strategic side as a leader, you know, you know, in those first in those in those issues towards the end where he's telling them one plan. But actually, then we find out later telepathically, he's telling them a completely different plan, which we didn't know about. You know, that kind of stuff we, we hadn't seen for years, you know, and. That's, I think that's one of the reasons why I love this so much. You know, I can pick this one up, you know, in preparation for this recording. I've read this series over and over again so many times. And every time I read it, it's a pleasure. I, I just love it. I think, yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. So, I mean, no, there are, there are issues. 
but it's perfect. Yeah, it's from a, a slightly different inciting incident would have been nice, but that's all it would take. Yeah, yeah everything sure. from that point forward, even armor gets promoted to a member of the team instead of being. Yeah, because that's the other thing, isn't it? Wolverine always has to have a sidekick and it always has to be a young female. Right. Yeah. And Kitty's obviously grown up. So there has to be someone else. And in this one, it's armor. Yeah. We're... She's the one who is the Kitty analog for Wolverine. Yeah. And she is brought in beautifully, even at the end when Shadowcat's gone. One of Armor's shining yeah. moments is Wolverine is sitting there crying into his beer at the loss of Shadowcat because, I mean, they had they had their own miniseries. There was obviously a great connection there. And how does he snap out of it? He gets hit in the face by Armor. And he's yeah. like, you don't want to do this today. And Armor's response is, are you kidding? You need to grieve. I need to train. Let's get to I it. need to train. Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. It shows so much about her where, yeah, she's picking a fight that she may not necessarily win because they both need it. And she recognizes that. Yeah. No, I and, and you know... Cassidy, I mean, this is another one. It's a bit like the Wolverine thing where you had Claremont and uh, Frank Miller at the top of their game coming together to do a Wolverine mini. And this was like, you know, Joss Whedon, who we all knew is amazing from Buffy and for me from Firefly. I love Firefly. Yep. And then you had you had John Cassidy, who was, I think, in the middle of doing Planetary, if not. Well, he must have been in the middle of doing Planetary. Again, at the top of his game as well. And and I don't think Cassidy has looked better since Astonishing X-Men and uh, Planetary. I don't think he has. And, you know, I love this series. I know I can't tell you how much I do, but I do. I'm glad I'm glad I got I'm, I'm glad I got picked to talk about this one, Blaine. Let's put it that way. Well, it's yeah, this is a, a good one. This is one of the few times where I was deliberately getting the, those X-Books. The, the X-Books I've had on my pull list have been pretty limited. I got mm-hmm. the DVD-ROM. I picked up classic X-Men when I could growing up. That was reprinting that. The Claremont, early Claremont era, so Claremont Byrne, Claremont Smith. But astonishing, I found out Whedon was on the X-Men, and I was there issue by issue at a time when most of the stories I was collecting, I was trade waiting. Sure. But I mean, the other thing as well that's great in this series is that, you know, you don't often see the other superheroes in the X-Men books, but you see the Fantastic Four early on. Mm-hmm. And again, the dialogue is spot on, you know, like things saying, hang on, giant monsters is our thing. What are you guys doing here? This is, you know, this is this is me. I want to smash a monster. You know, What are you guys doing here? And even that last giant size issue where pretty much all of Marvel Universe is there and, you know, he gets to write dialogue for all of them. It's, you know, like when Spider-Man hits storm and storm says you dare you know that's that's what you think she'd say and you know she's talking on the phone to um or talking telepathically to cyclops and saying you know everyone's waking up uh, spider-man's uh, spider-man's hitting strange i think he's trying to wake him up but he's hitting him and it's just it's just little things like that just make it i know like you've just given uh this this is this is the perfect comic to give someone who's thinking to get into x-men or thinking of getting into comics or has been away for you know, I think this would be a perfect one to give someone to mm-hmm. to start them off back in. I'm not sure, you know, because you wouldn't give them Grant Morrison's new X-Men, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Claremont Burns stuff would be a bit wordier for the audience of today, but this this would be perfect. Yeah. I mean yeah, the Claremont Byrne and Claremont Smith stuff is great, but comics industry has changed enough yeah. that if people read that and go, I love this, I want more like this and go to their comic mm-hmm. store, they're not gonna find more like yeah. this. Not unless they're in the trades of getting more of the Claremont Burn or the Claremont Smith run that they didn't have in the first place. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, no. This is one that helped really bring things through. And it's, I mean, this is Joss Whedon early, if not at the start of his comic career. Because he, after he finished this, he did a, he did a run on Runaways, didn't he? 
Yeah, he did a he did one story arc. I don't remember if it was six or eight issues. And then and then was the, the next time he got in was it um back when Buffy restarted in Dark Horse? Was that when he was back? Yeah, I mean Joss loves comics, but I think lately he's been way too busy turning comics into some of the most successful movies in history. Yeah, I mean you know having watched the second Avengers movie and reading this so close to that, you can see the dialogue carries through. So actually. I think that's the other reason why this this dialogue feels real is because when it's translated onto the onto the screen it still sounds genuine and I was hearing the same sort of dialogue I'm not going to spoil anything obviously but I'm I'm I was just hearing the same sort of dialogue the same sort of interplay that makes everything believable great stuff I think the other thing that we didn't touch on was the fact that for ages Xavier has been um he was I, he was a bit like Colossus as in that I think the writers didn't know what to do with him and in this one, you, you, see, you see him just reduced to a villain of sorts himself. So much so it makes sense that he would not be, they would just leave him in Genosha and not bring him back, you know, based on what he did to danger. Yeah, which is completely in character because it's, the mission is that important to him when he recognized, I mean, for just for what Fractures is talking about, for the, the people listening at home, Xavier was the only one who recognized that the danger room was sentient, mm. but still... Yeah, he still basically lied to himself as much as anyone else to keep using her as a tool and essentially an indentured slave. Exactly. And I thought that was quite well done as well. That was quite well done as well. He's he's turned into, I don't know, I mean, have you read any of uh, Morrison's uh, Doom Patrol? Not his Doom Patrol. I've read his new Okay, So Doom Patrol is a a band of misfits uh, led by uh, their professor, who is uh, called Niles Calder, and he's in a wheelchair as well. And he is he he's not a nice man at all. And this was the closest that Xavier came to reminding me of uh, Niles Calder, just, you know, single focus on the mission. And if people get hurt on the way, so be it. And that's very much what Niles was like. And. You know, obviously Xavier is no longer with us, but um, for the for at the moment, anyway, as you'll find out when you listen to this podcast, when you discuss uh, Avengers versus X Men, spoilers. <laughs> yeah, that's that's coming up at actually spot thirty three, so twelve weeks time. So, any last thoughts on this one? No, I mean going through what we've got here. I mean, if we want to get into the the deeper meanings and any messages and morals, this is. It's your your standard X-Men trope. Like you said, it's not... It feels like an X-Men story we've never read before, even though it is composed entirely of elements we have seen yeah, before. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's all the same ingredients, but he mixed them in a different way. Yeah. You know, it's... You can get a fettuccine Alfredo at any pasta restaurant on the planet, but this is one of the best versions of fettuccine Alfredo out yeah. there made from those ingredients. So we've got the, the standard tropes of, you know, we've got this minority population... And now there might be a new legal way to segregate them. Yeah. Right. Just look at what's going on with some of the, you know, some of the adamant and I hesitate to to talk about the the conservative and the right wing groups in the states that are trying to create a state religion, at least in their particular state of the United States. I don't want to call them conservative or right wing because most of the conservatives I spoke to agree that they're utterly ridiculous. Right. So that term. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not doing this because of that term. Sure. You know, they're not doing this because they're conservative. They're doing this because they are almost religious fanatics who, you know, there's even a senator who said freedom of religion does not mean freedom from religion. And they're trying to to push through that everyone must be some version of Christianity. It's things like that that make stories like this resonate. Because as soon as the cure is known, the immediate reaction is, 
okay, now is it going to be mandatory? Are they looking at wiping mutants out? And I like the fact that we see both sides. I mean, Beast honestly thinks about taking the cure because his brain power is not his mutant power. He's just smart. His mutant power is what makes him look like a cat. And we've got the introduction of Abigail Brand as director of SWORD, who really helps him overcome that in the end in a rather unexpected way. Who would have thought that Wolverine would be the voice of reason trying to convince him not to do it? Because the X-Men, yeah. X-Men are the are the poster children for mutants, and if one of the X-Men wants to take the cure, then thousands would probably follow follow suit. I yeah, it's a. I suppose I forgot to talk about this, but the, it just this series has amazing little little retcons that make so much sense. It's a bit like, well, why does why does Emma turn into a diamond? Why why is that her secondary mutation? And then you find out here, yeah, this is all part of Cassandra Nova's plan. And she gives her mm-hmm. that because she's a predator. And it just all ties in very well. Sometimes when you get these big celebrity Hollywood writers coming in and writing a story, you get the feeling that they like the character in principle, but they're not that familiar with the mm-hmm. mythos. Whereas Joss Whedon, this doesn't feel like an editor has gone through and said, okay, you need to make these tweaks to fix it so it's consistent with history. Mm-hmm. His run is so dependent on the history. Yeah. He's clearly a fan who's been reading these books for years. I mean, he's a third generation TV writer. Yeah. He had access to getting signatures from anyone in Hollywood because of his father and grandfather. The first autograph he ever got, he made his dad drive him four and a half hours away to get Stanley's autograph at a comic book convention when he was nine years old. Amazing. That's where it starts. And frankly, I can see the comic book influence in Whedon's writing. If you look at the structure of the first season of Buffy, that's the structure of Stan Lee writing in the 60s, right? It very much similar to the, the Lee Ditko Spider-Man. Mm-hmm or the early Fantastic Four, mm. where, yeah, you've got a villain of the week, but your personal life marches yeah. on. Yeah. Right. You go back to those early Spider-Man stories, there's one order to read those issues in, for the most part. Just like there's one order to watch Buffy in, even though they could have a new villain every single issue. It's because there, there's been slight, just incremental changes to their personal lives that say A comes before B, and B comes before C, and so forth. I suppose that's the other thing is that, you know, reminded me a, mo- a lot of the uh, Claremont run was the fact that there was foreshadowing of other things happening in other places. So we've got so used to people writing for the trade that, and people, you know, writers not knowing if they're going to have a long run or not, so they can't do any foreshadowing, that in this one it's nice, you know, meanwhile in space, or meanwhile back at the X-Mansion, whereas you don't get that nowadays much. Obviously he had that... He knew that he was going to have a 25-issue run, so he had that ability to do so. But it was nice to go back to that. It was nice to, you know, because you read Claremont and you'd be you'd be reading about Rogue in Savage Land with Magneto. But meanwhile, Shadow King is, is you know, he's still trying to get hold of Aurora and all that kind of stuff would be happening. Whereas you just don't see that nowadays because everything is written for the trade. It's not written for the long form. And it was nice nice to have that back again. And apparently when that does happen now in the Marvel audio, in the Marvel offices, the editors call it Claremonting. No way. Because that's exactly what Claremont really? did. He would just toss things out there as threads to pick up later. Apparently there were numerous times in the course of his run when he'd come into the offices and say, that's it, I'm out of ideas, I'm off the X-Men. And his editor would say, well, you know, you you, you threw this out there a few issues ago and haven't come back to it. And Claremont would go, yeah, you're right. Okay, I'll go deal with that first. Oh, that's... And then come back 12 issues later. That's cool. Because that's just enough that. to get the juices flowing. I didn't know that. That's cool. And you know, that's what—that's the kind of stuff that keeps people hooked, isn't it? If everything is a self-contained story, yes. then you say, okay, I'll pick up this one, and then I'll drop the next one because, you know, I don't need to particularly have it. But mm. having those hooks, those little mysteries that you don't know what's going on is what keeps people buying the comics, don't they? 
Yeah, that is the reason why, you know, when Git Corp was putting together the DVD-ROMs, they would look for collectors who had the issues, if they didn't have them within the company, to scan them into PDF form to put out the DVD-ROMs. The hardest one, the, the biggest difficulty they had putting one of those DVD-ROMs together was actually the Betty and Veronica from the 70s volume. Because they are standalone stories and because they're not continuity-driven, they're not collectible like these are. It's not, you don't have that before and after. It's not this point in a large story. They're all totally independent. So they weren't particularly valuable issues. They were just rare issues because nobody was keeping them. And they didn't have a lot of resale. And I think the lack of resale value of Archie Comics is also partly because of their digest program. Yeah. So there's a lot of reprints coming out on a fairly regular basis. Here we get the flip side to that. We get someone who loves the continuity and uses it, but not to the degree where if you were picking this up and reading it for the first time, you couldn't follow the story. Yeah. It informs the story, but... You, you can read this as your first introduction to X-Men or, I mean, as I said, I gave this as a Christmas gift to someone who followed X-Men pretty regularly for about a year and a half in the early nineties. Yeah. And she just loved it. Great stuff. Big smile on my face. If someone wants to be introduced to the X-Men and says, what should I read? Yeah. I would put this higher on the list than some of the X-Men stories that are higher on this list. As a primer, it's absolutely perfect. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I, I can actually only think of three clean jumping on points for the X-Men. Oh, yeah. There's issue number one from the 60s. Okay. There's giant size X-Men number one from the 70s. And there's astonishing one by Whedon and Cassidy. Yeah, no, I, I'd, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. Yeah, I can't think of any other one. Yeah, maybe the, the Jim Lee Claremont number one, but even that. No, no, that's, I mean. That, that was so focused on Magneto's history to kick off the villain. Very steeped in continuity, that one. So it's a, it's an interesting story, but. That's very much steeped in uh, continuity. At 44, though, I think that's – it should have been closer to the top 10, this one. Yeah, or 45, anyway. 45, yeah. sorry. Yeah, it should have been closer to the top 10 is my my opinion. Yeah, there's a few. There's a few on here that I think should it should be above. Mm. 44. What's 44? We might as well actually skip ahead to what your the reading assignment is for next week for the people listening along. 44 is Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2, Issue 36 – or 477, the original numbering. So this is the 9-11 tribute issue. Okay. Reprinted in, in Marvel Must Haves number two. Okay. Best of Spider-Man Volume 1, Amazing Spider-Man Revelations, trade paperback, Marvel Visionaries John Romita Jr. hardcover, Marvel Tales Flip Magazine number seven, Amazing Spider-Man Complete Collection Volume 1, trade paperback, Marvel Digital Unlimited, Comixology, and the uh, second Git Corp DVD-ROM, or actually the only DVD-ROM, uh, not the CD-ROM collection. That's a good issue. It is a good issue. That's one. Well, we'll hear more about it next week when I discuss that with Lex Pendragon, also of Horizon Labs. Oh, Lex, yeah. That's a, that's, and it's a, it's a black, it was a, I bought that in singles. That's a black cover, isn't it? With the amazing Spider-Man in white on the logo on the top. Yeah, the, well, the, yeah, the title was actually in gray. It's a gray, a gray. But that's it. Yeah, gray logo on a black cover. Fairly light gray, but even then they kept it gray instead of going with the vibrant white. So, yeah, but looking at it, there's a few here. I would put it above a few of the things that are coming up. but So that's what we've got to look forward to next week. And I think unless you've got any closing thoughts about this one, anything we haven't come up with. No, I'm sure there are things that will come up that I said, oh, I should have said that the minute we stopped recording. But I think we've covered it pretty well, apart from saying that everyone should read it. Yeah, I think that's the point that we've got. It's if you have enough interest in these kind of stories to be listening to this podcast in the first place and you haven't read this one yet, then you owe it to yourself to track it down. Yeah, yeah. Even if you don't think you like the X-Men. There have been a lot of X-Men stories. There have been good ones. There have been bad ones. This is one of the best of them. 
I would say if you could read this and you still don't like it, give up on enjoying the X-Men from this point Because <laughs> if this doesn't do it for you, nothing That's will. That's a fair comment. Fair. Not unless it has been... If you don't enjoy this X-Men story and you find the next book you do enjoy, I would say... That's so far out of the purview of what X-Men normally are that X-Fans don't like it. That This has everything that is definitively X-Men done in some of the best ways possible. Yep, agreed. All right, so Fractures, thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me on again. Oh, my pleasure. Yep, you've got a, a couple more coming, so... Yep, looking forward to it. All right. So, and to the listeners out there, remember to review this and all the podcasts you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you're getting them from, because that does help promote their visibility. Join us again next week for the 9-11 tribute issue of Amazing Spider-Man, and thank you for listening. Hi, this is Siri. I would never, never ever listen to the Earth Station One podcast. Who the heck says howdy anyway? Why don't you listen to Chris Hardwick instead? I can get you his information. The Nerdist is everywhere anyway, haha. That was a joke. The Earth Station One podcast. It's time to let your inner geek out to play. You can find them at www.earthstation1.com or up on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever fine podcasts are found. Peace, and we're done.